So Lord, now as we come to look at this passage in, in John's Gospel, of an encounter of Jesus and this Samaritan woman who, whose life was broken. Father, may you share with us your wisdom. Would you, would you make clear your truth to us? Would you speak into our hearts? We pray all these prayers in Jesus' name, knowing that you hear them and that you will answer. Amen. Please take a seat, and if you uh, have your Bible, uh, then please open it to John uh, chapter 4. And if you don't have your Bible, then it should be magically appearing behind me. Ta-da! John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, and also his sons, and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become, a spring to, sorry, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come 
when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. There was another story in the news this week. I'm not sure uh, you noticed it. You probably would have missed it uh, in, in, not surprising, in, in all the news that there has been and all the election coverage. But there was a story about Mount Everest. Did anyone see it? <laughs> One or two. There was a story about Mount Everest, and there has been some thefts on Mount Everest. And when you first read that, you think, my goodness, <laughs> who goes to Mount Everest to steal something? Surely there are easier targets uh, if you want to steal something. So surely there are more lucrative places to ply your trade if you are a thief. But what's going missing on Everest is not something that is really of much value to you and me here, because we've got plenty of it. What's going missing on Mount Everest is oxygen. Now, we've got oxygen around us. We don't need oxygen here. But on the top of Mount Everest, if you run out of oxygen, you find yourself in big trouble very quickly. It is possible to go up uh, without oxygen, but uh, it's very difficult, very, very difficult, and most would find it impossible. Now, without oxygen on the top of Mount Everest, most of us would die from exhaustion and from a lack of oxygen. See, there are companies who take people up Everest. And when you're climbing Everest, you may not know this, it's quite a hard thing to do. It's not a simple walk in the park. I know there's one or two of us who have exerted themselves physically today. We've got one or two people who did a triathlon today. Uh, and you probably know a little bit about physical exertion. But even your efforts today probably don't match trekking up Everest. And if you're trekking up Everest, what you don't want to be doing is carrying your oxygen with you. I mean, you could probably carry a little bit, but you don't want to be carrying all the oxygen you need because those cylinders are heavy, and it would just make your journey that much harder. So the companies that take people up, the organizations, they leave oxygen at the top enough that they, so they know that when they get up there, there'll be enough for the group to, to proceed to the summit and come down. They, they, they have oxygen in the, the highest camps, and they keep a record of the oxygen. So that when they're taking a group up, they know that they've got enough oxygen to get that group to the top and back down safely. Well, they've been getting up to the top and finding that the oxygen they thought was there isn't there. People have been taking it, breaking into the tents that the oxygen's kept in, stealing it and using it. And when they get to the top of Everest and they find that there isn't enough oxygen, they have a very difficult decision to make. Do you risk that you've got enough in the tanks that you're carrying for the group that you've just brought up there, many of whom have paid an awful lot of money to be there, I assume, got enough oxygen to get to the top and back, or do you go back down? That's their choice. And it's a choice of life and death. It's a life and death choice. Now, that caught my eye this week, because as I was reading this passage and working out what I was going to say, I realized that I don't really understand what it's like to be short of oxygen. But I get that picture that if you don't have enough, you're in trouble. And the parallel to this passage that we've heard today 
is that Jesus was in a very, very hot place. And he'd been walking for a very long time. And what Jesus needed at this point, he was in a little bit of a physical mess at this point, what he needed was a drink of water. Because water in that place is life or death. If you don't get it while you're walking through that arid land, because Samaria was, it was quite a desert, we're in very hot. If you don't get water, it's life or death. There's a real need there. And anyone who looked at Jesus would see this is a man who is in need of a drink. Not just like us, you know, I'll go and get a pick up my cup or switch the tap on. Water wasn't that available. No, there was a real physical need here of Jesus. And it was life or death stuff. He needed a drink. But as with the other stories we've seen in John's Gospel, that's the physical reality that was in front of the lady as she got to the well. Here's a man who desperately needs a drink. Thirsty. That was the physical reality of the situation. But there is an earthly reality here, and there is a spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality is something far more significant, but far less realized. So in John's Gospel, we've seen this kind of split situation already. We've looked at two passages prior to this. Remember, we first we looked at the wedding in Cana a couple of weeks back. And then last week, we looked at the uh, conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus. And in both these situations, there was a physical earthly reality that everyone was aware of. But Jesus was aware of a deeper spiritual reality. And through Jesus' interaction with the people, that deeper spiritual reality was revealed. So at the wedding in Cana, there was a physical problem. They'd run out of wine. We've got no more wine. What are we going to do? It's a problem. It's a big problem. Bigger problem in their culture than it was in our culture. Jesus was able to solve that physical, earthly problem. But actually, what Jesus demonstrated was there was a spiritual reality to what he had come to do. See, the wine wasn't just about having a good party. The miracle of the wine, water being turned into wine, was Jesus being revealed why he had come, and that actually Jesus' coming was a cause for great celebration. And do you remember that picture of the absolute abundance of the wine? More wine than they could possibly drink. A thousand bottles, I think, was the, uh, the amount that they, uh, it was calculated. More wine than could possibly be drunk by the people at this wedding. The absolute abundance of the kingdom of God. A spiritual reality that is revealed to us through Jesus' miracle wasn't just about having a good party. It's about revealing who Jesus was, that he was God, and what he had come to do. And again, in that conversation with Nicodemus just last week, that earthly encounter, and do you remember they start talking about being born? Do you remember that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus uh, where Jesus is saying, no, no, yeah, you need to be born again. If you want to experience the kingdom of God, if you want to know what it is to know God... If you want to really be a follower of God, then you need to be born a second time. And Nicodemus basically says, well, that makes no sense. How can a fully grown man be born again? That's impossible. Because he saw the physical 
the earthly reality of what Jesus was saying. But what Jesus was saying had a different level. He was talking spiritually. You need to be born. The other translation of that born again is born from above. You need to be born of the Spirit. No, there needs to be a spiritual birth in you. If you want to see the kingdom of God, then you need to be alive spiritually. You need the Spirit of God to be at work in you, to bring your life to life. A spiritual birth. See, it's a spiritual truth that Jesus is bringing into an earthly situation. And so essentially what we have in this story today, this meeting between Jesus and the woman at the well, is an earthly situation, but there's also a deeper spiritual situation here. We have a man who is physically exhausted, talking about spiritual water, to a woman who is spiritually exhausted, but talking about physical water. A man who is physically exhausted, physically needs a drink, but he is talking about a spiritual truth. And a woman who does not see the spiritual need, only sees the physical need of water. And I'm going to give you my punchline away. Uh, They say you never should do that, but where we're going is this. I like to give it you so you can hold it in your mind so you know that I'm on track. I'm one of those people who always reads the last page of the book first. Do you like me? No? Some people are. I don't mind knowing the sport, the, 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 uh, the basketball score at the end of the game. I'm quite happy to know what the score is and still watch the game. Uh, I'm just strange like that. So I'm going to give you uh, the end story here. This is where we're going. The conversation basically leads us to this truth. That only in Jesus can we be spiritually alive. And only when we are spiritually alive can we truly worship Only in Jesus can we be spiritually alive, and only when we are spiritually alive can we truly worship. So let's have a look at the text. Firstly, uh, there's a a practical question that is raised in verse 4. Sorry, I foolishly shut my Bible. Give me a second. I always advise you never to shut your Bibles when I'm preaching, but um, I should also advise myself, it seems. Uh, Verse 4 says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Jesus needed to go through Samaria according to the text. But actually, geographically, that wasn't true. Geographically, there was another route, and it was the route that nearly all Jewish people took. And it went around the side to the east of Samaria. You see, um, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get on. They didn't like each other. For religious and cultural reasons, uh, they were not friends. Jews would not speak to Samaritans, and Samaritans would not speak to Jews. There were some that even said that if you were to touch a Samaritan, if you were a Jewish person, you touched a Samaritan, that would make you unclean. It's part of the power of that uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, actually, that sometimes we miss. You don't speak to Samaritans. You avoid them if it's all possible. You certainly don't make conversation with them. So there was another way, but it was longer. It was actually an easier journey as well. It was much more um, uh, cooler and and, uh, more uh, lush, verdant way of going around. I'm led to believe I've never been. Certainly not when Jesus was around. There was another route. So he didn't need to go through because it was the only route. 
So maybe it was a time situation. Maybe Jesus had to get to the north quickly, in which case he'd take the, the shortest route. Well, that would make sense, but later in the chapter, at the end of this chapter, we clearly say that Jesus stays two days in this place. So time can't have been an issue, because if it was, he wouldn't have waited around for two days. He would have just gone the longer route around in the first case. So why does the Bible tell us Jesus needed to go through Samaria if he didn't? Well, it's my opinion, and you can agree with me or not on this, I don't really mind, but it's my opinion that the need that drove Jesus to take this route was not his need. It was the need of this woman who he meets and this town that she came from. See, Jesus needed to go this way because if he didn't go this way, he would never meet this woman. He would never have this conversation. And the change of life that comes about in this woman and in the people of that town would never happen. Now, the need that drives Jesus to go through Samaria is his need to share the good news of who he is and what he's come to do with this people. Now, that might be the thing that catches our eye uh, as we read through it. It was think caught my eye. There may be other things. But to contemporary readers, to, the, uh, to, to John and the people who he would have given his gospel to at first, the first people who first read this gospel and heard this gospel, the thing that would have caught their attention would be something else. The thing that would have caught the contemporary listeners' um, attention would, would be, why is Jesus having this conversation with this woman? Because there are three good reasons why Jesus should not have been talking to this woman at all. The thing that would have stood out to people from this story is like, why is this even happening? Firstly, as we've already covered, this woman was a Samaritan and Jesus was a Jew. You can even tell from the text there that the woman's surprised. Why are you talking to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Almost the subtext there is, are you stupid? Why are you talking to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We don't do this. I don't care if you are thirsty, we don't do this. And also I like to think that uh, that little bit that tells us the disciples were not with him is again, you know, almost trying to cover the disciples' backs. The disciples almost saying, John perhaps saying with them, well, if we were there, he would never have had this conversation. Don't blame us. We're washing our hands of this. <laughs> she was a Samaritan. And it wasn't just some uh, petty grievance between the Jews and the Samaritans. No, it was a deep cultural and religious issue that was between them. You see, the Samaritans were what was left of the northern kingdom that had been taken off into exile some time before the southern kingdom of Israel had been taken into exile. They were what's left, and what was left was probably not the best of them to start off with, and they were a pretty bad bunch as far as it goes by the time they got taken into exile, the, the, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And those that had been left had kind of mingled with uh, the pagans who were, who were around the place, and their faith had been twisted and wasn't really what it should be. It had been changed by the, uh, the worship and, and the, um, the religion of the, the pagans that they, they'd intermingled with and bred with. And so the Jews saw the Samaritans as sort of a half-breed, people who should have known better but have gone away and been led astray from the truth. And they really disliked them. In fact, it's not, it's not an exaggeration to say that there was hatred between the Jews and Samaritans. 
Samaritans, for their side, thought that they uh, had preserved uh, the true religion and that the, uh, the Jews had actually were the ones who had elaborated and embellished their, their faith. And one of the central uh, points of the disagreement was where they should be worshipping, where the temple should be. And that comes out in the passage as well. No, Jesus should not have been talking to a Samaritan. One reason why he shouldn't have been talking to her. There's a second reason. Not only was she a Samaritan, but she was a Samaritan woman. Now, our culture is very different. We have a different attitude towards women and towards um, how men and women can interact nowadays. And perhaps it doesn't seem strange to us for a woman and a man at a well to have a conversation. But in Jesus' day, that would not have happened, particularly as Jesus was a religious teacher and was known to be a religious teacher. He would obviously have been a Jewish religious teacher. The woman would have noticed it straight away for the way he dressed, the way he acted. And religious, pious men did not associate with women. They didn't have conversations with women when they were on their own. They were very careful to keep themselves separate. But here Jesus is, having a conversation with not only a Samaritan, but a woman by himself. And there's a third issue here. Not only was she a Samaritan and a woman, but worse than that, and what compounds the other two, is that she was clearly a woman of questionable moral character. Now, Jesus knows this, and we see uh, later in the text that he has a divine understanding of who she is. But it would have been obvious to anybody that here is a woman who is of questionable moral character. See, nobody went to draw water in the middle of the day. Drawing water was a hard job, took a lot of effort, and the midday heat would have been scorching. And they do say only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. And it was true here. No one would go out to gather water, take water in the middle of the day. That's crazy. You went to get water in the morning when it was cool or in the evening and the sun had gone down. That's when everyone else would have gone to draw water. So the fact that this woman was going in the middle of the day, at the hottest part of the day, demonstrates that she was trying to avoid everyone else. Maybe she was trying to avoid people, or maybe people had uh, driven her off. They, when she came at that time, they didn't let her come. But for whatever reason, she's here now because other people don't want her at the well when they're there. It's an assumption to make, but we see that's the truth from later on. This is a woman of questionable moral character. So what's Jesus doing? Having a conversation with a Samaritan who's also a woman and one of questionable moral character. It's a question that would have perhaps put a lot of people off Jesus. Made them question, who is this man? Why should we listen to what he's got to say when the way he acts is not in keeping with the way we expect him to? But here's what I take from it. Jesus here takes a first step. A first step towards someone who he had very good reasons why he, should, he could have nothing to do with her. Takes a first step towards a broken person who had no right to have a conversation with Jesus. 
There was nothing in or of herself. She didn't deserve Jesus to speak to her, to offer her the gift that he does offer. But Jesus takes the first step to a broken, unworthy person. And if he takes that first step towards her, then maybe, just maybe, he'll take that first step towards you and me as well. That the work of God in my life is not something that he does because I deserve it, because I'm worthy in some way, because I've earned it. No, Jesus took the first step towards me while I was still a sinner. Powerful words from Romans that resonate that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And those words from Corinthians that we had at the start. The gospel is that Jesus comes to us and dies for us so that we can be saved. Unworthy as we are. So this encounter between a tired and thirsty Jesus in physical need, but with a woman who is desperate spiritually. And what does this encounter look like? How does it play out? Well, it goes a little bit like this. Jesus asked the woman for a drink. We've covered that he shouldn't have done that, but he did. Her response would be the response of anyone from that culture, and that is, how can you ask me for a drink? It's not something you should be doing. Jesus' response in verse 10 is to turn it around. He says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, if you knew the truth of this situation right now, not just the physical side of this, but the full situation that stands before you, if you knew who I was and you were honest about who you were, you would realize that it's not me who's in need here, it's you. You're the one with the need. And I'm the one who can meet that need. She was the one with the need, and Jesus was the one who could meet that need. That deeper spiritual reality, something much deeper than meets the eye, goes much deeper than the physical, earthly situation, the spiritual need that Jesus sees. But the woman still doesn't understand, or she's still unwilling to understand. She starts talking about the well. She's still talking about this earthly situation. She says, well, you lack the necessary tools to draw water. How can you even offer me a drink? And her, her response, I don't know if it is in, in, in the context of her language, but I like to think it's sarcastic. Are you better than Jacob, who gave us this well? He fed his whole family and even his animals. Are you better than him? But in her response, although she seems to be trying to be scathing, she actually hits on something true. Yes. Jesus is greater than Jacob. He's come to do something greater than what Jacob did. And Jesus speaks about the water that he can offer again. And the woman still doesn't understand. You see, by this point, she she knows she wants what Jesus is offering. But she still only sees it with her earthly eyes. How will what you are offering me now benefit my earthly body? Give me this water. Give me this water so that I won't have to come here anymore. I can just stay at home. I won't have to keep coming out in the middle of the day to draw water in the, the hardest job 
Essentially, she wants what Jesus is offering, but she wants it for now, this physical earthly life. Make it better for me, Jesus. That in some way, following Jesus gives us this earthly reward. She's missed the truth of what Jesus offers. Someone's playing football outside. She only sees how it will benefit this earthly body. She's missed the the deeper spiritual truth. She wants it, but she doesn't fully understand. You know, I I, I see a a terrifying amount of um, this particular attitude in our church today. We, we hear a lot of it in America. Apologies to any Americans who are here. And it's, it's slowly creeping into the UK as well. A prosperity gospel, which basically says if you follow Jesus, you pray the right prayers, and you do the right things, and you make the right donations to the right missionaries or the right causes that come up on our TVs, if you follow the right way, you will have material rewards in this life. You'll be rich, you'll be happy, you'll be prosperous. People who miss the spiritual need and the spiritual reward because they're too busy focusing on what we can get in this life. That's not the gospel that I see. It's not the Jesus that I'm following. The one who said anyone who will come after me must take up his cross and follow me. There's no prosperity on a cross. Not an earthly prosperity anyway. Yes, there's a spiritual prosperity there, but not an earthly prosperity. We need to lift our eyes beyond this world which is around us, although we still need to live in this world because we're part of this world and we will remain part of this world even when this world is remade into a new world. We live in this world, but we lift our eyes to God. We see the truth that there's an earthly, real, physical reality around us, but there is a real, spiritual reality as well. She asked Jesus for this water, and it seems that Jesus changes the subject. Because then he starts not talking about water, he starts talking about other things. But if we follow the course of how this conversation goes, we see actually that what Jesus asks now is what leads him to releasing this water in this woman. It's what leads her to this water. And he asks her about her husband. And it's a subject that she doesn't want to talk about. Quite understandably. She simply says, well, I haven't got a husband. And Jesus says, well... You've had five, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. She quickly changes the subject, because Jesus has touched, hasn't he? He's touched on that spiritual need. She, she wasn't really understanding that she was thirsty. She was still thinking that Jesus was the one in need at this point. But Jesus, in those words, shows her where her thirst is. Demonstrates to her the brokenness of her life. And again, it makes me ask that question. Are we honest with ourselves? 
Are we honest with ourselves? Do we look inside our lives? Do we look at who we are and face the truth that actually we're all spiritually thirsty? We all are broken. We're all in need. We need more of God. We need more of his work in our life. We're all works that are being worked on, but we're not there yet. Sometimes we consider ourselves unworthy and we hide away. And do we sometimes count ourselves out of God's grace because we're unwilling to accept the brokenness in our own lives? She quickly changes the subject. She goes on to the subject of worship. But unfortunately, all she's doing is actually moving closer to the truth. Unfortunately, in one sense, because she's trying to avoid it at this point, but fortunately in another, because this is her salvation beginning to work. And this gives Jesus the opportunity to speak truth into her life. And he says this, verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He's spelling it out now. A time is coming when it doesn't matter where you are. Where although we're in this world, the physical is not what we need to focus on. Whether you're on this mountain or in Jerusalem, doesn't matter. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. He points at her, puts a finger on that spiritual thirst, and then he tells her, if you want to worship God, it's not about where you are now. It's about in that place of pain right there, that brokenness. That's where God's going to do a work. That's where God is going to put this stream of living water that is going to quench all your thirst. Take away all that pain. And I know, although I don't know, I don't know what, what specifically I'm talking about, but I know that in this room right now, there are people who are feeling that depth of thirst in your spiritual, there's, there's like a spiritual hole in you. And you're desperate for that thirst to be quenched. I know there are people in this room now, and I know that that's a familiar feeling for me as well. Well, that is where Jesus will put this spring of living water, Holy Spirit, that will fill us, that will quench that thirst. And when that happens... That's what allows us to worship God. You know, it's not about coming to this place, singing these songs. It's about that place, deep inside, where we connect with God and he meets our every need. That's the place of worship. And that's nearly the end. Not quite. 
the woman still got one question. I kind of hope, and I think at this point, she kind of knows the answer to it already. But she says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I kind of think at this point she's probably got it. She's just looking for that confirmation. And Jesus' response is amazing. He uses words that he uses um, 40 or so times in John's Gospel. And 20 or so of those times, um, he uses it in a way which unnecessarily emphasizes what he's saying here. So he's kind of merely making a point, really hammering it home. And the thing that he says here is the thing that really upsets the religious authorities and gets them on his back. In fact, it's probably the thing that leads to his uh, crucifixion. And what he says is this. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. There's 20 or so times, this, this time included, where the I is emphasized unnecessarily, which is demonstrating that Jesus is making a point here. And the point he is making is he is talking to a culture that knew who Moses was. It was written on their hearts. And they knew what was written in Exodus chapter 3, although they didn't have chapters like we do then. And they knew that that name was the name that God had given himself. Jesus here in this verse is essentially saying, yes, I'm that person, but I am God. I am the one who will fill your need. What I've said to you is true, and you can trust that it's true, because I am the one who will meet your need. I've spoken for a long time. had an interesting conversation with Rish just before we came in, where uh, I told him I'd preach this at 8 o'clock, and it was hard to fit it into 10 minutes. And he suggested I might do it in 10 minutes tonight, and I said that wasn't going to be the case. (laughs) But just bear with me for just a short time longer. Because how do we respond to this offer? Because the offer was there for this woman, it was there for her community, and as you read on in that passage, and please do that, can I encourage you to read the rest of this passage this week if you can find the time, and it won't take you long. We see that that town was turned around by the words of Jesus here. The offer is for us. The offer of living water that we can't live without. God has revealed himself to us in this, this book, these words. It's not just a, um, a book with interesting stories in it. This book is living and powerful. And if you allow it to, and you engage with it, this book will change your life. He's revealed himself through the Bible and through the life of Jesus. And he knows us just as he knew that Samaritan woman. And he loves us. In this book, we have all the truth about who he is and what he has done to believe. We don't need to earn it. We just need to receive it. Father God, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, 
And I thank you that you know our deepest needs. Especially this week, Lord, when we've seen the brokenness of the world so, so clear. Father, would you pour out your living water? Would you make a fount of living water in each of our lives? And in doing so, Lord, would you allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth? Amen.